Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And of course I interview authors about their latest novels. This is the first of a couple of special Christmas shows. Interviews and reviews that you can dig into at your leisure over the Christmas holiday. And I'm going to kick off with a chat with Chris Frost about his slightly subversive Christmas thriller, The Killer's Christmas List. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Chris. Hello, thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. A lot of listeners will know you anyway, Chris McDonald, for your D.I. Erica Piper series and the Stonebridge Mysteries. Um, but we're going to be talking about your new novel, which is uh, The Killer's Christmas List. I suppose the thing is, just let's jump straight in. Tell us about the novel, please. Okay. Um, the novel is set in the Northeast. Um, it follows D.I. Tom Stoneham, who has moved from around where I live, near Manchester, um, up to the Northeast to take on this new role. Um and he fancies a, a sort of quiet Christmas to himself, away from family, yeah. bit of a chill out, and uh, a killer in the northeast is keen not to let that happen. Um, on his first night in Newcastle, he uh, he's called to a crime scene at the Angel of the North. Uh, they find a body of a man who they believe is a politician, um, and in his pocket is a list, a Christmas list that looks like it might belong to um, a child. Um, he doesn't have children, so they have to try and work out what, uh, why it's there. Uh, and they quickly find that the list links to murders that happen after the second one. And they have there's three more items on that list, and they have to try and stop the murders and try and decipher the list before the murderer can can claim more victims. That's a lot of stuff. There is a much more complex story than I initially thought, which is great. I mean, in the sense that. Um, you know, for instance, where you said it was a politician, well, it was a politician who was killed first. And it sort of leads you along the idea of, is this a killer who's just a crazed killer who's going out and killing people, you know, a politician, maybe the next one will be a celebrity and the next one, you know, that sort of thing. And of course, it turns out to be a much more involved mystery and that with a much more heart to how it gets resolved. Let's take a step back, though, for a second. Um, so you've written this under the new name of Chris Frost. You authors are doing this deliberately just to confuse people like me, critics. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I suppose really it's because it's such a different thing to your normal right that you just felt the need for a new name. Would that be right? Yeah, I think um, I, I wrote with Red Dog Press, Huber and Indie Press. Right. Um, all I ever wanted was a cool book cover and uh, Red Dog Press were, were doing really great things. So I was really um, chuffed when they took a chance on me. Um, and then, yeah, I did 10 books with them. So I did the Erica Pipers, I did the Stone Bridges, and I did a PI novel. Uh, mm. and, um, when it came to this, so I got, I was chatting with the editor, at, who's, who's now my editor at Harper North. And, um, yeah, we just thought it was sort of a clean break, different publisher, sort of, um, slightly different story. Uh, so yeah, we just figured it was, was probably time for a, for a new name. <laughs> So you gave yourself a seasonal name as well to go with a Christmas mystery. I tried. There was a list, and um, yeah, we we both liked that one the best. So uh, yeah, it certainly we worked anyway. Um, it's kind of paradoxical, though, isn't it? You know, at this time of the year, we seem to like murder mysteries in the season of Goodwill, and I'm curious about what you think is behind that. You know, why that bothers us. But in the context of your writing, as a writer, is it sort of a crime writer? You know, one of those things where there's sort of there's types of writing like golden age you know the lock room mystery and so so you've sort of there's a sort of a thing about i must write a christmas mystery was it sort of in your mind i suppose is what i'm asking yeah i think um 
over the over the past couple of years, there's been some cozy, mostly cozy Christmas crimes, and then, right. and this year people have it seems have have sort of gone the same route that I have, where um, you know, people like grisly crime books every other part of the year, so why not at Christmas? Yeah. I think it's a really nice um sort of almost like a juxtaposition of you expect this sort of jolly, like you say, golden age, sort of cozy. Right, um, it's a mansion house. There's a body that drops somewhere yeah. in the house, you know, and then the other people are all sort of suspects. It's that kind of thing we're sort of used to, yeah. Yeah, and and I kind of thought um, it might be nice if that didn't happen, but, um, you know, murderers at Christmas don't don't suddenly change and become all tactful. Um, right. There's still crimes of, you know, yeah, devious yeah. people out there. I sort of pictured a nice field of snow and then this body lying in the middle of it, and that was sort of where the initial spark came from. Um, and you make a good point there about the, the kind of traditional Christmas story. I read um, Peter Swanson's book, and wow, it's it's different. And yours is different too. You've gone for this very dark, atmospheric feel. I mean, was it sort of the natural thing that the story suggested that, or this deliberate attempt to subvert things, if you like? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. That's really kind. Um, yeah, I think it, I think the story sort of, and I'm awful at giving spoilers, so. I'm going to be very careful with what I say. Um, I think the storyline, like you said at the start, sort of, it it almost sort of veers away from typical murder mystery and becomes a bit of something else. And um, I think the story lent itself to that setting where, you know, like I said at the start or or just before where I pictured a field suddenly, you know, of snow and suddenly Mm. like, it doesn't last, does it? There's like slush and there's ice and and that sort of good feeling of um of the traditional Christmas goes quite quickly when you think of shops piled with people and and things like that. So there's a lot of Christmas which I think is um sort of lurks beneath the surface. And I think the storyline one side planned it out and I knew where it was gonna go. It lent itself quite nicely to to not the sort of jingle belly Christmas that we all know. Um yeah, I quite like the way that it that took that sort of darker undertone. Yeah, and there's a specific aspect of that that's really interesting, which is, of course, this story is embedded in the past, as all stories are. There are things that come back. But in the current, because you have this Christmas list, this Christmas killers list, you wind up with uh, a ticking clock because now they've got to find out what's going on and find out who the next victim might be, how they can stop these things happening. So you've got this ticking clock, and it's, You set that against, of course, the natural ticking clock at Christmas, which is the countdown. I mean, Advent calendars start, you know, now. And it's it's brilliant to get that sort of juxtaposition of the two, isn't it? Yeah, and I really like that in stories that I read where um, there's a sort of definite time where if it's not solved by this, it's either not going to be solved or something worse is going to happen. Or there's, you know, that massive jeopardy for for the investigator or whatever. and I really like that. And I've always, I've never done that before in anything that I've written before. It's always right. just sort of been ongoing. So um yeah, I like that sort of here's the stop point and it has to go one way or the other by then. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This I mean, it's a police procedural in one I, that's I hate that term actually, because it makes it sound boring, doesn't it? And the truth <laughs> is the books with police officers in, it's not about procedure. It, you know, it's as little procedure as you can put in a book, I suppose, in essence. But this is also a psychological uh, mystery. Would you say that? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, um, the police thing's a strange one because I'm sure you've talked to other crime writers who, I mean, there's Graham Bartlett and there's Neil Lancaster who were serving right. police officers, and they say that um, if you wrote 
you know a fraction of the stuff that they get up to it would be a very boring book because it's mostly paperwork or um yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't make for a very interesting reading so um neil gave me really good advice years ago where he said if you can get a few key details in mm. to make people think you know what you're talking about then you can skip over the really boring parts and just make it make it the interesting things um with regards to the psychological thing i think it does veer into that because there's obviously the case that they have to solve, but then there's Tom's sort of past life, if you want to call it that, um, mm-hmm. that sort of plays into the story too. Um, so yeah, it was a really interesting challenge to to sort of come up with the case and then come up with an interesting enough backstory as well to um, to sort of keep that side of it going. That's interesting then, because, um, I mean, we have to be careful what we say about Tom Yes, uh, without giving too much away. But in the general terms then, was it sort of the idea of the list that sort of sparked the novel then you know you said about the body in the in the field of snow was it sort of the list and then tom came along as a character i mean what could you say about tom in that context yeah i think that's probably fair yeah um i think the list is the driving force behind it because i think it says on the back of the book the first two clues linked to the first two bodies um and then after that you're kind of on your own as a reader um and uh the investigation sort of plays out where um They've made that link. The first body says no angel. Um, sorry, the first item on the list is no angel, and the politician's body is found at the Angel of the North. Right. And the second uh, is red party dress, uh, and the person who's found is wearing a red party dress. Um, so, can we the, say the, that it has a deeper meaning than that again, without spoiling it for people? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. and I think yeah, and I think yeah, it's it's a significant thing. Um, and I think the case then they've made that link of what do, what do the next three item means, and I, and I like that with when I'm reading books with the sort of clues like that, I like to think mm. myself, you know, you're in you're in the sort of head of the inspector or whatever, and and it's a nice way to I think keep that uh, sort of investing going, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. It's, it's interesting because Tom arrives and he's he's brought into this case earlier than he wants to be. He's not expecting to go to work straight away, but of course he's forced into that. And one of the interesting things about the killing is, and this is sort of, it sets the tone for the book up for me anyway, I thought right at the start, was the calculation of the killer involved in the first murder. And it's just, it's cool. And at the same time, it's sort of, you, it makes you chill straight away. You know, you know, this is a dark story. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. That's really kind. And I think the, the prologue, uh, sort of the very first thing you read is from the killer's point of view. Um, yeah. And I think that set the tone quite early. Um, that came sort of later on, and I'd written the sort of the original draft was how the body was discovered was very different. Um, and we'd we talked a lot, my editor and I, about keeping this not cozy. And at the start, it was almost comical how they find the body. Um, right. And she said, "Well, we want to keep the tone straight from the off that it's not cozy." So yeah, right. um, it was sort of this like sort so of. So you had to really rethink that very carefully. Yeah, it was a sort of zany couple, and they were there up at the Angel for like a silly reason that I thought was quite fun. But yeah, absolutely, the editor, you know, her notes made total sense. So um, yeah, I think it was important to get that tone very early, so that helps. One of the things that I think, I mean, readers love it, it's true, the twists that come in a novel. I'm not so sure I'd say so much twists as um, a sort of reveal that shifts the narrative completely, let's say, as things go along in the novel. Yeah. 
you enjoy that kind of, I suppose, the, the red herrings, the clues, that sort of thing, you know, is that the fun of writing a crime novel? Yeah, it is. I, and I think the, the reliance on the twist, um, I mean, when you, when you, as a reader, when you read one that nails it, it's amazing. But there's a lot mm. of times I think, um, it takes it too too much precedence. It becomes yeah. the, the the story kind of bends to the twist rather than the twist is a part of the story. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So I think if if one comes along naturally that sort of blows your mind, great. But yeah, for a police investigation, I think it's important to have red herrings. So what I kind of like to do is make a list of the suspects before I start writing a word and sort of work backwards. So what would their right. motivation be? Um, and then how can you work in? them being in an area or them having a certain motive or or something like that so yeah i sort of start almost at, at the wrong end of the page and go backwards and yeah it's a fun thing to do to try and fit them all in yeah i think that's fine. as long as there's a logic at the end of the day that's what you need isn't it so the reader gets to the end and they say well yeah i get it now and i understand where that fits but i would say that again i, I think i indicated earlier on how complex the novel is and i don't want to put people off with that but what i mean by that is how it has this shift, you know, that changes the dynamic completely, if you like. And so you don't get a very simple story. You get something that's rooted in what the psychological drama that we're talking about and how it becomes a, a you know a proper deep story in that sense. One of the things is that you're with Harper North for this one, and you mentioned that. And um, it's a very, well, relatively new sort of enterprise up north to, to promote writers up there. Um, and, and we can be a bit London-centric in the crime world. Uh, yeah. And location is always really important in a novel these days. I don't, you can't get away with just a murder mystery, you know, it's got to have that location. But I'm just wondering how important it was to you because it's on the cover of the book, The Angel of the North, um, and it's the iconic element of the first murder. Just how important is it to you to represent the North, I suppose, in your writing? Yeah, I think, I think that's a massive thing. And, and I think the, the Angel of the North was always sort of our cornerstone for the first murder and, and you know like you say it's on the cover and and um readers in the northeast have been really responding to that right um yeah i think with the next thing i'm writing um i had a chat with my agent about you know where it should be set and things like that and um he said you know so many books have been set in london that it's almost you know people want something new um and you know it's set in Manchester the next thing, so it's not like I'm breaking ground or anything. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think it is really nice that people, you know, the North is represented because you know Mike Craven's doing amazing things for for Cumbria, Cumbria and Jonathan yeah. Whitelaw uh, in um in the in the Lake District and things like that. So um, yeah, I think I think it's just you know it's it's to get that is sense a big of thing. place, isn't it? Yeah, I mean you're right. It's not about originality. There there are writers writing about everywhere in Britain these days, so that's yeah. true. But it, it does feel a lot, you know, it's a lot more comfortable reading a book where you think, ah, I know this location, but it's not like there's a hundred different detectives here as opposed to London where you think, well, can they really distinguish it in truth? You yeah. know, well, some writers can, some writers are great, but it's such familiar territory, you know, it's just nice to have. And to, I think uh, you also want to learn something from a book in a sense, don't you as well? You know, and so learning about a place maybe you don't know as well as the writer does, or you obviously don't know as well as the writer does. is always Yeah. Fun. And I, I think being in the North as well, um, it's easy for me, you know, Newcastle's maybe two hours away by train, um, and so is London, to be fair, but um, it was nice to get up and explore places where I hadn't been before, and, and that right. was quite nice. Um, you know, I, I'd never been to the Angel of the North, and I, I sort of thought, well, I'll just, I looked on Google Maps before I went and thought, I could probably get, you know, a sense of it in the book, but when I went, you just get so much more. Um, right. 
th- there were these sort of um, tributes hanging from the trees uh, and things like that. And I just, you know, it's things like that. Yeah, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have got that unless you actually visited. Yeah. 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 So you, the, no. the scale and everything is just something different when you see it close up. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. It's such an amazing piece of art. I suppose you're a teacher. One of the themes in the book, in a sense, is, or something that certainly is pointed out, is that the right start in life matters. Let's put it that way. And at this time of year, maybe we should think a little bit about some people don't get the best start in life. Yeah, I think it is. Um, yeah, I, I think my bio might be a bit outdated. I, I was able to give up teaching uh, in March. Um, right. Still not full-time writing. Oh, well, I'm a script writer for a true crime podcast now, so um, I am writing, so it's lovely. But yeah, it, it was like... you. And I think that was a big thing for those sort of flashbacks, if you want to call them. Um, uh, yeah, I, it's it's easy to think that everyone has the same experience, I think, yeah. at Christmas or, you know, not even big events like Christmas. Just when you'd ask some children what they did at the weekend, some would have been like having the lovely time or, you know, they'd have gone on a family bike ride and some played PlayStation yeah, into the early right. hours of the night and i just thought um it, it's easy to to just have the same expectation of children uh to have the same you know to think that they'll all have the same emotional intelligence and mm. things like that where it's really not the case and i think that that can it changes how people how people react and how they grow and how they live their lives you know for the rest of their lives um some people can overcome a shaky start and you know, flourish and some people that that's them for life. Yeah, um, of course, yeah. So yeah, it, I thought it was an interesting thing to play with. Yeah. And it certainly, it comes out in the book, you know, it's just one of those things. It makes you think about those issues, I think anyway, which is the point. Um, oh, thank you. How, how, could you do this again then? Or will you do this again? Are you interested in doing another Christmas book? I mean, you know, we'll, we'll we see another one next year from Chris Frost. Um, I'm not sure. I, I would love to. I really think um, the character has, you know more to be explored and um i was very fond of writing him and i liked the team that i put together and yeah i liked the settings so there was a lot to love and um it was a one book deal uh so we're kind of just waiting to see how it goes before right. um before we go any further but yeah i i would really love to to you know send tom in another case great no it does seem to be going well though i've seen you know you're out and about with people people seem to be responding to the book well don't they yeah, the reviews have been really kind, and you know the the net galley. I've never been a net galley before, but I was sort of terrified of. Right. So I've had experiences with friends who've been traumatized. Um, it's a quite a you know an honest place, which it should be. Um, but yeah, it's been the ratings have been really lovely, and people have been been very kind. And I was up in the northeast at the weekend, and and there were lots of book sales and things like that. So um. Yeah, and I was very lucky that Asda took a special edition as well. So um, oh, I had to write like a little extra chapter for that, and it's got a uh, it's got like a little sticker thing on it. <laughs> um, oh, so, yeah. if, I'd, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have inter- interviewed you. I haven't got the special edition. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the things like that are great. It really is as a writer. I'm sure that must be really satisfying. Okay, one last question. I'm not going to be cruel here. I'm not going to suggest you have to come up with a Christmas book. But how about a recommendation for listeners then? Oh, well, I've been thinking about my book of the year recently, actually. Um, right. And the one that probably stands out this year, and it's called The Good Liars by Anita Frank. Right. Um, I probably wouldn't have read it based on what I usually read. Um, 
and I was on a panel with her at Capital Crime, uh, and I'm so pleased I was because the book is just incredible. Um, it is set in like a mansion, um, and it's just a tale of of uh, sort of broken people and and there's so much going on uh and the cover is beautiful too and Anita's is lovely so um yeah i think that's an all-round win goldsboro did a really nice version as well um but yeah that's probably probably my one that i'd recommend this year right i will put that on the program notes so people can see that chris thank, thank you very you. much ah oh, thank you it's been a joy thank you so in all honesty christmas crime books are not my favorites on the other hand when they're subversive like this i certainly would recommend chris frost's the killer's christmas list So next up is Robert Rutherford, and he's talking about Seven Days, and that's going to come out in April, but I just thought it'd be nice to give you a little heads up now. So I've asked him a few questions to just fill us in a little bit on the book, and we'll have a proper chat about it in April when it's published. But it's one I think you'll want to know about. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Robert. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me on. No, it's a pleasure. We actually, we saw each other less than a week ago up in Newcastle, Noir. Um, I'm just wondering, did, did you enjoy that? We did indeed, yeah. I've I've always obviously it's my hometown festival, and I've always got a lot of affection for it. Not just because of that, but it was the first ever festival that I I went to, even right. as a reader before I was published. So it was kind of my my kind of gateway drug into the world of crime fiction festivals. And it's sort of connected to the Lindisfarne Prize as well. Connections I made through there um, that made me aware of um, things like the Lindisfarne Prize. I for, for stuff like that, if you're not moving in those kind of circles and connected to to the right kind of people on um, Twitter, you don't see these opportunities. Um, and uh, things like the Lindisfarne Prize, yeah, it, it was uh, that was a dream come true winning that. Yeah, I'll bet. One of the things about it, of course, was I saw you up there with the Northern Crime Syndicate. Whose crime is it anyway? And that's that must be one of the most fun parts of going to a festival, getting to do that in front of an audience. Yeah, definitely. And uh, what I love about it is it's it's never the same twice. Yeah. So for anyone who hasn't been, we literally, with the audience help, we create a uh, quote-unquote bestseller in 60 minutes or less. Um, and some of the topics the audience throw up and the suggestions take it off into some sometimes dark, sometimes weird, wonderful and wacky kind of directions. So it's just, it's a lot of fun being able to do that and then being able to do it with a group of friends as well makes it all the more enjoyable. And there is a little excerpt of it on the Newcastle Noir second episode. So if people want to catch up with it, they can they can get it there. Um, so, look, some people are going to know you from the Porter and Styles series, um, but we're here because we're talking about your 2024 novel, which comes out in April, and that's Seven Days, published under the name Robert Rutherford. But tell us a little bit about that first. Was it the change of style sort of thing that, that, that you decided to have a new persona? Yeah, there was a couple of reasons, really. One one was, uh, like you say, the change in style and the type of, of crime novel it is. The, the Porter and Styles series, the first four books, are all very much traditional police procedural. Um, and it's just, it's such a hard market to stand out in, you know, there's so many great writers out there. Mm. And I, I, I'd always fancied trying something a little bit different. So the, the ideas that I, um, ended up being signed by my agent for were more high concept thrillers. Um, and also it was just, um, generally a hard market to sell into full stop at the time. So David, my agent had said, how do you feel about going out on submission under a pseudonym? And we won't say who you are until they make an offer. 
um, and, and we'll see where we get. And then when I got the offer from Phoebe Morgan at Hodder and spoke with, um, with her and David afterwards, they were both still fans of the of the pseudonym right. A because it then draws that line between here's you know, a previous series of four of one type of crime book and then these ones are hopefully going to be markedly different. Um, but I've still got a family connection to the name. It's a, it's a name that's come down from my dad's side. It's my dad's middle name. You know, it's my son's middle name. And we've got family connections to, to Newcastle United with Rutherford right. surname. So it still feels quite personal. Yeah, you didn't just make it up at random. No, no, a, no. <laughs> tell us a little bit about Seven Days then, please. So Seven Days is um, unlike the, the police procedural ones, which are set in London. This one is, right. uh, it starts off in the northeast, up near my home stomping ground of Whitley Bay, um, but then takes flight and finishes up, um, taking us to both to Paris and to New York and to Florida, um, and then ultimately back in Whitley Bay again. And it's, it centers around our main protagonist, Alice, who is a 30-something-year-old lawyer, and she's been estranged from her dad for around about 14 years. Mm. And it opens up with him inadvertently gate crashing back into her life when she finds out that he's actually been on death row for the last 11 years through her younger sister, she finds herself, and he's only got seven days to live, hence the, the title of the book. And she's had him out of her life for so long for a whole host of reasons, does not want to let him back in, even in these circumstances but gets guilt-tripped by her younger sister who threatens to run off and start yeah, making all it. kinds of waves and inquiries if uh, if Alice won't do it for her. Yeah. Was it that concept? I mean, what was the actual idea that got you started with this? You know, was it the thought about the guy on death row or the daughter and the relationship? Twofold, really. And there's, there's one that I can talk more freely about and one that I can't because it gives sure. away a big okay. pivotal point of the plot. Like, we, you know, we talked about over a drink in Newcastle Noir, but yeah. I think one, one of the... The main things I, I love in um, in crime novel is that sense of urgency, that real ticking clock. Sure. And I, I sat there and thought to myself, you know, how how can I really exploit that? And death row popped into mind eventually when I was kind of m- mulling around a few ideas, and I thought, how how much more final and um, urgent can a ticking clock be than someone who's literally scheduled to to die in seven days' time? Um, and of course, by the time someone gets that close, most of the avenues of appeal have already been exhausted. So it feels like a pretty hopeless kind of situation. And then to overlay that family dynamic on top of that of, do you even want to help your dad? I know he's your dad, but yeah. because of all the stuff that we find out that um, that soured their relationship, does she even want to help him? Is he exactly where he's supposed to be? Um, so combining those two kind of really felt like it, it set, the, set the scene for something that I hope is going to be pretty compelling for anyone who reads it. Yeah, see, it's, it's a sort of a double compulsion, if you like, because the first one is you've got a guy on death row He's got seven days and it's a question of, did he do it? Didn't he do it? Is there a way out of this or isn't there a way out of this? And, you know, that's a side of a story. But then you complicate that or you rather you you layer it, if you like, by adding this story about Alice. And it's a fascinating thing. You said she's been estranged from her father. Now, her sister takes it a different way. But between them, it's a question of it's a lot about family, isn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely, because it's not just about her Alice's relationship with her father. It's that contrasting relationship that her younger sister, mm. Fiona, has. She was younger when when things weren't great as, as a child, so she doesn't remember most, most of that and almost thinks that Alice is amplifying it more than she needs to. And then you've got the dynamic between the two sisters and how that drives the plot forward. You've got the, you know, the kind of the younger, more impestu- um, impestuous sister in Fiona who wants to act more impulsively and... She's thinking from the heart, whereas Alice is thinking from the 
the head more so around you weren't you know you don't remember what it was like growing up with him in the house with him as part of the family you don't want to go back there yeah exactly very different for the two girls um one of the things about it is that um the moral dilemma that crops up around that is something i mean lots of families have these split ups you know families split up and you sometimes people get back together or not but the question of course this time around is it's all in seven days and fiona puts a lot of pressure on her to, to get her back in the game to say right okay i know you don't like that you know i know your memory of him isn't good but after all he is your dad so it, it begs the question does blood count for anything really yeah and i think it, it does to an extent it, i guess it depends how how far you've been pushed and how how far you've been tested with them um, with the bonds of those relationships <laughs> i think it, it certainly colors how alice approaches things in the immediate aftermath of finding out about a dad you know kind of you read that and think was she almost too closed off to even asking the right questions mm. at the outset but obviously without without spoiling anything obviously things yeah, aren't yeah Think, things don't go entirely according to um, how you might think they do, and, and certain things start to unravel. And I'm not saying that he, her, her dad is blameless or guiltless, but the way that she approaches it starts to, you know, a few a few cracks, shall we say, start to open up in this picture that she's got of yeah. him and what she thinks he's capable of. Um, that she almost she can't stop herself from then yeah. peering a little bit further. See, that's one of the interesting aspects is the memory thing. You know, yeah. she's closed off from this world, so she's got a she's got a very fixed opinion of what happened in the past. Mm. And of course, when everything comes back, it confronts her with with well, certain things that change that image of the father's on death row. But it, it's pretty important. I mean, this a lot of this novel you mentioned, you hinted that it goes to other places, it goes to New York, goes to France. At the same time, though, of course, it's set in the Northeast as well, mm-hmm. and it's still fairly important to you, I think, isn't it, to to keep that kind of local flavor in there. Yeah, definitely. So <clears throat> again, if I compare and contrast against the first four books, they were all set down in London for for two reasons. One, I was working down there for a couple of years at the time, so that was where I was spending a lot of my time. And right. also for those particular plots, for the very first one anyway, um, I, I needed for a whole host of reasons probably a, a, a much bigger stage than I think Newcastle City could provide. Um, mm. But once I've kind of moved past that series. I've always wanted to write something set in the Northeast, even right. if it's not entirely in the Northeast. And I think that kind of contrast we've got here between the, the cityscapes and the wilds of Northumberland, for example, just gives you such a rich canvas to play around with. Mm. You know, there's so many different scenarios you can, you can put someone in within a 20 minute drive outside of Newcastle um, or, or half an hour. You, you can be in the middle of nowhere. You can be you know, almost in a kind of a dark skies kind of territory where there's, you can't even see the nearest house. And there's yeah, no, right. no man-made light to, to kind of spoil the uh, the starry sky for you, and all sorts of things can happen in them in in places like that. When you've got that that almost quick flip a switch kind of contrast, um, and then there was also definitely a, a big appeal for me in writing scenes set places that I I go myself anyway. Right. So I think there's there's one scene I think I've mentioned to you where I'd I'd written a scene set in a, a conversation in a cafe. While I was sat in the very same cafe, uh, a place called Nine Streets, not far from where I live. Yeah, sure. Um, and it just, yeah, it, it, I was kind of smiling to myself as I wrote it. I sat there, sipping at my coffee, tapping away. Um, and it just, it, it adds, a, it's weird, it's just like an extra layer of enjoyment for me. And yeah. you know, things on, on the beaches where I play with my kids and stuff like that, it just, it really, it makes it mean something more, if that makes sense. 
No, it does make sense. I, th- I think one of the things that comes out in really good crime fiction is that people love the places they write about, even yeah. when they're writing about the dark side. The other thing is, of course, I can't ask you at this stage because the book's not published until April. So I can't say, well, what do the locals make of it? But we'll see. That'd be interesting to know, you know how people approach you afterwards and talk about it. Yeah, very much so. And I know other authors' events that I've been to where they write about the places they're at. Often it's one of the most common themes of either questions or comments or feedback they get. Right, yeah. It's people who, who recognize those places and who've been there themselves. And it's, it's almost like they're more invested in it because they know where the place is that they've just read about on the page. Mm. What about then? I mean, this is a high concept novel. Are we going to get more Robert Rutherford? Are you going to do more high concept novels, if you like? That is the plan, yes. So the, right. the deal with Hodder is for, is for two books. Um, we've already agreed on the second book, um, which is already written. And the second book, funnily enough, is the, the book that I won the Lindisfarne Prize for that I mentioned earlier on. Yes, right. Um, and which is also the book that, that got me my agent as well. Um, that will come out in 2025. And again, standalone, not related to Seven Days whatsoever, but again, set very much in the north of England. This one doesn't go international. This is between uh, the northeast um, Manchester, and there's a, a little smattering of scenes down south as well, but mainly set northeast right, yeah, and northwest. Yeah. Um, but again, with a with more of a kind of a, a high concept at the core of it, rather than a, a police-led investigation. It, it's more again about families and relationships and, and how how people react in real high-pressure situations yeah. in relation to kind of the world around them. Because I think that's what crime uh, readers expect these days. It's not so much about stories. You, you need good stories, of course you do. But it's actually about character at the end of the day, isn't it? And these stresses that you've got in this novel, Seven Days, and some you know the other novels as well, about what it does to character and how people react mm-hmm. in those situations. That's what we're there for, really. Because it kind of tells us how, how would we react in those situations too. Yeah. And I, I think character for me, and this cropped up in, a, um, in the panel I did at Newcastle Noir, Character for me is one of the most important things that I, I feel I've got a nail yeah. in a book because if you don't care about the people I'm writing about, you're more likely to stop turning the pages. You've, you've got to be invested as a reader in their fate, really. Yeah, for sure. Robert, thank you for that because I think we set it up nicely now. Basically, I'll see you. Well, I might see you sometime soon, but I will definitely see you for the podcast again uh, in April when we talk about Seven Days properly. Thanks very much. Yeah, fab. Looking forward to it. And you can pre-order Seven Days from Robert Rutherford, which comes out in April. And it really is one for those fans of that high-concept, fast-paced thriller. now for a slightly longer chat with the author Stephen J. Golds, who's just republished his own trilogy, The Dead, The Dying and The Gone. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Stephen. Hello. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. That's no problem at all, mate. So we're having a chat because on December the 12th, your noir trilogy, The Dead, The Dying and The Gone is going to be coming out. But that's being published by um, Punk Noir Press. And again, we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, just for the Christmas listeners. They're out there. We want them to take note of the book. But let's give them a bit of background to start with. I mean, you're living in Japan. You're working in Japan. Tell us a little bit about Nagoya, please. Well, I live in uh, Nagoya, Japan. I've lived here for about 17 years. And I, I work at a university now teaching uh, English literature and English language to uh, students. I love my job. 
and uh, in my spare time I like to do as much writing as I can and uh, hopefully the dream would be write full-time I, that's a dream to write full-time yeah the thing about it is that when you write indie it's very difficult to get seen in the big bookshops and things isn't it you know the market's kind of smothered and that makes it tough mm-hmm. for, uh, for people to get out there I think it's uh, especially difficult when you're writing, you know, noir, as I do, the more darker side of crime writing, Mm. especially recently, we've seen more of a trend towards these uh, comfy crime, cozy Mm. crime. And uh, a lot of the larger publishers that I've submitted to in the past have, you know, they've loved my my style, they've loved, or they've said they've loved my voice, they love my style, but... uh, the stuff that I'm currently writing about is considered maybe too too dark for mass market, which is a shame. But uh, with the new novel, I'm currently writing a crime novel set in Japan. And as Japan has one of the lowest murder rates in the world, it's probably as cozy as I'm ever going to get, I reckon. <laughs> okay. See, I think that if you put stuff in front of people, people get a chance to see it then, you know, there's an awful lot of people who do like dark fiction. Let's let's get off that a little bit anyway. Um, I mean, you write across literature. You write poetry, mm. short stories. You write noir. You write stories that are crime and not crime. So it's quite a range of stuff. And, and you know, we can mix it up and talk about that. But I want to talk about your influences first. I mean, who, who are the influences on your writing, do you think? Well, the funny thing is I've got quite a wide range of um, people who have inspired me over the years from i guess charles bukowski was a major influence when i was younger right um to john fante mm. tobias wolf raymond carver richard Broutigan. and as you can see most of these are what we would probably term i don't know dirty realism mm. writers so i feel that's kind of my origin is from that sphere of literature where it's uh, dirty realism. It's just been more of a coincidence that, you know, my major novels have been crime stories, I guess. Um, but uh, the newest novel that I have now have out now, Shadows, Slow Dancing in um, Derelict Rooms, is more of a, a throwback to those kind of novels that I've been most inspired by in the past. Let's talk about those terms then. Start with that one, dirty realism you mentioned there. What do we mm-hmm. mean? Well, the thing is, I, I did. I had no idea about that either. What happened <laughs> was, um, at university, I took a I took a course in creative writing, and uh, my lecturer, who I love until this day, is uh, the Irish uh, feminist writer Moy McCrory. Right, and. Um, she was the first person ever to pull me aside and say, hey, you know, you've got, you've actually got something here. You've got mm. talent at writing. Um, have you read Raymond Carver? And I said, I, I don't know who that is. And she said, well, you're writing Dirty Realism. And uh, and I think you'll love his writing. So I checked him out. I found uh, Charles Bukowski around the same time. But Dirty Realism is really... It's kind of grit lit, gritty right. literature, um, where the stories are more voice based or character based, but it's really about quite similar to noir. It's people who are at the bottom of society, the outsiders, and um, 
people who work in blue collar jobs or people who are not accepted by society and usually it's it's character driven by those people as a young guy those people really kind of spoke to me because i came from a, a working class background right and, uh, yeah. you know there were not really any books uh, literature in my house my dad loves reading about uh, world war 2 history but there was really no books so the the kind of stuff that i found on my own was uh, in the charity shops uh, right. stuff like stephen king or if i was lucky enough to find someone like tom jones right okay got and uh, yeah those kind of people who because in the summertime i worked at my dad's construction site it was kind of blue collar people that really spoke to me the most and these kind of you know uh, hard drinking chain smoking you know people who worked at the factories and stuff like that yeah really inspired me and i guess that's kind of dirty realism as best i could describe it working class literature maybe yeah. would no, be the best it makes an awful lot of sense because i wanted to say that mm. moving on to another one which is the word transgression and i i'm mm. sort of thinking here that um not all your novels are crime novels, but you say you do sort of lean towards crime. And we are talking about some crime novels today. But one of the things about that is that for me, I think, and it boils down to transgression. And crime novels mm. kind of come from transgression, really, don't they? And that's the starting mm. point. So it doesn't have to be an actual crime. It's just that thing within a relationship, say, where you've got transgression. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes, I would. Uh, basically, all of my writing, whether it whatever i've done i've tended my main aim is to talk about or to write about scars or scar tissue is right. really what i'm trying to do so even with my crime novels it's not really about the crime or the mystery each character is dealing with their own scars or their own traumas and that's you know our scars our little traumas are the things that make us who we are really and if you have scars or if you have traumas, they kind of direct your life. They mm. influence the choices that you make. And I feel that's a more interesting aspect to to really shine a light on rather than, you know, the crimes per se. But again, I think you know. The older you get, you know, the more you think about it, the more you realize that the way we lead our lives is random in the sense that it is, mm. as you just pointed out, it's those scars that determine the steps we take and what we do next. Definitely. It's not some plan. It's not something you sit down. It's got nothing to do with whether your job is the one you want or whatever, you know, it's those things that happen to you in life. And that's, that's what the, that's what writing comes from, isn't it? Mm, I think, you know, the things that have really damaged us uh, are the things that influence every choice that we do make, you know, whether it's, to go into work or not to go into work or what time you go at the supermarket everything's kind of influenced by the experiences that you've had before so nothing is really random i think mm. i think even if it's subconscious you're somewhat you're influenced you know by your past i really do believe that yeah so how does that then take us to or how does that all sit with noir sensibilities then what are we, what are we talking about when we're talking noir sensibilities do you think well, I think, you know, I, I listened to your podcast earlier with uh, Matt Phillips, a terrific right, writer, yeah. and he talked about 
you know, he went into the the whole aspect of noir. And, um, you know, I kind of agree with exactly what he said. It's the uh, the people that don't really have any chance in society taking one last one last toss of the dice to see, you know, what they can get out of a situation or or if they can get out of a situation. They're really people without a chance. And I think with my aspect of noir, what I've tried to do is focus more on the post-traumatic stress of those characters that they've had. One of the first uh, novels that I wrote was Always the Dead. And the character has post-traumatic stress, which is the main influence of the whole novel, more than the actual mystery of his missing girlfriend. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. One of the things I remember you telling me, because we spoke once before, and that was about um, Charles Ardai, and he gave you a bit of a leg up at the start, didn't he? Tell us a little bit about that, please. So, um, yes, uh, uh, Charles at a Hard Case Crime, like uh, he's uh, one of my dream publishers. I've got two dream publishers, and Hard right. Case Crime is one of them. So I always, I've always submitted to him in the past, and he always gives me such great, great feedback, you know, even though, Usually, you usually get a form rejection, right? But he always gives me—he always gives me like a page or two of great feedback, and you know, even if he doesn't—he he doesn't take the novel, he always makes sure to give me some amazing advice, which a lot of uh, a lot of uh, great editors have done for me in the past. I think. Mm. Yeah, and you really need that, don't you? I mean, it's really helpful mm. for a new writer um, to get something like that. All right, then let's have a little chat about um, the novel you published this year, actually, Shadow Slow Dancing in Derelict Rooms, um, which I saw actually was just put out by the Independent Fiction Alliance as one of the best books of 2023, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I was really surprised by that, actually. I, I didn't know anything about it. I'd never, I didn't hear nothing about it at all. So when someone texted me about it, I was, I was very surprised. But, you know, I'm really happy about it as well. I'd say we could say this is a love story. Would that be fair? Yeah, I've, it definitely 100% is a love story. But uh, that's one of, again, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write it, because it's not your typical romance. It's not your typical love story. I think if you go into any bookshop and you pick up any love story, it's pretty much the same format. No one, and if we look back on all of the romances or, relationships that we've had in the past every single mm. person has had you know those deeply regrettable or deeply traumatic relationships i think everyone's had at least one or two and yeah, I, yeah, I no, figured sure. you know yeah i figured you know that's something that i i want to write about and i want to write about it in a way with you know an unreliable narrator so you don't really know who's telling the truth and because we are every single person probably is their own unreliable narrator so yes. these are the things that i wanted to use and i wanted to show a very deep love but also show one that's deeply messed up as well and uh you know poisonous toxic we've all had those toxic relationships i think at one point or another yeah i think what it was for me that was really interesting about this is it's illustrating what we've been talking about, really. We've been going down this route to get to this point, in a sense, about, you know, transgressive literature, about dirty realism. You've got, first of all, you've got 
perspectives. And we have the perspective of the unreliable narrator. And he's unreliable in the sense that he's rewriting some of his own stuff. But he's suffering from trauma, which is related to grief and other things in his life. And so he's not deliberately at times being an unreliable narrator. He's just a guy who's messed up by the situation he's been through. And there's a lot of trauma in him. So you cover mental health. You cover those different perspectives you get. But it feels really truthful as a story. And I say that in the sense that when you talk about love stories, you don't, you know, when you get, they have a conflict and then they have a resolution and everybody lives happily ever after. It's not like that in the real world. And this is kind of examining, taking a real sharp look at the relationship where you start to see all those problems, all those wounds and scars that you were talking about that lead to the point where, you know, at the end of the book, we find out what's happening. I was really worried about actually writing it and actually putting it out there because I felt it was maybe perhaps a little bit too honest. Maybe I kind of made myself a little bit too vulnerable Mm. in the writing of it. And um, it was a deeply taxing uh, thing to write, to be honest. But uh, I feel happy with it and I feel that I accomplished what it was that I wanted to do, which is chronicle chronicle those kind of relationships that Mm. haunt you you know like a ghost or something where you know you never got any closure or you never got to say goodbye properly and you know you know you damaged each other just as badly yeah you know and and unfortunately it's afterwards we think about it isn't it yeah so as well like uh, i'd already dealt with those kind of things in the poetry that i write i originally came from poetry and um when I when I set out to write it, I thought, well, I'm going to do, you know, a 68,000 word poem. And that's really what it is. I don't think if, if someone reads it, I don't think. I don't think they've read anything like it mm. really at all. And the only thing that I was really, really inspired by was uh, Sarah Kane's Psychosis 448. Right. Uh, have you ever read that? It, no, it's I an amazing screen. Well, it's a, it's a script for a play that she wrote, and it's right. basically it's basically her suicide note, really, because she yeah, took her right. life after actually, you know, finishing the play. And um, there's so much. It, it makes you grit your teeth when you're when you're reading it because mm. it's so so utterly honest. And then I thought that's to be that honest is such a beautiful thing, and that's really. My main aim, more than entertaining, since I've started writing, is to be as to make. I, I want to make people cringe with my honesty. Maybe is uh, maybe my main aim, and I guess if that if that's in a crime book, or if that's in poetry, or if that's in you know transgressive fiction, then I hope that I can accomplish that. Yeah, no, I still certainly say to people, it's not an easy read, but then. What's the point in an easy read almost to some extent? You know, you don't need to have confirmations of things about life that aren't true. If you're really going to learn something, then you need to have a, some kind of confirmation of what's really going on in life. And I think well, you say that it, it would disturb people. It might. It really might disturb people. But that's because they'll be going to those places in their own mind that you kind of went to when you were doing the work. Well, something that really paid off for me, actually, was one of my heroes, Trevor Wood, was teaching oh, yeah, yeah. at the Faber and Faber Academy. And he actually chose a portion of, um, of that book to actually teach his students. Brilliant. Yeah. 
yeah, so that kind of blew me away to hear. He actually messaged me on that on Twitter or X as it's called now to say, see if I'm actually using your book in one of my classes. Is that okay? And I was like, wow, of course it's okay. So that was, you know, a huge, a huge bonus as well. Yeah, no, but so it was. Yeah. It's getting out there slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and it will help that the IFA, as I said, picked it as one of their books of the year. You know, if more people putting it in front mm-hmm. of people like that will be useful. When you go to those dark places to write this kind of dark fiction, how does that affect you? I mean, you know, you've got to dig up your own sort of darknesses for that then. And then is there a catharsis in that, you know, getting it out on the page? Or how do you feel about yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Like I've, I've said a few times, but it's actually like therapy. And right. uh, that was one of the reasons why I started writing again, because, um, you know, I, I wrote when I was younger. And when I moved to Japan when I was 23, uh, I actually quit writing altogether. Uh, and I never wrote anything for like, uh, I never wrote anything, I think, for about 14 years. I right. didn't write, not a thing. I never wrote one single thing. I didn't write a creative sentence because I was too busy learning the language and, and whatnot out here and getting situated. But then I had all kinds of problems. I went through some dark times and that's when I started writing again. And I've mm. been writing since. So everything I've written has been like, uh, a huge, huge therapy for me. And I always tell people that message me and say that, oh, Steve, I'm going through it right now or I'm going through a difficult time. I always tell them, put it into the writing. Use it for your writing. Right. Otherwise, it will use you. Mm. You know, So that would be my advice for anyone listening who's feeling down. Use it in your writing. And mm. the more that you use it in your writing, the less you'll feel it yourself, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that makes an awful lot of sense. Let's start talking about the dead, the dying, and the gone then. Um, I wanted to start by the saying, first of all, the trilogy was published by Red Dog. Um, my copy's over my shoulder there. Um, and I don't want to dwell on what happened with Red Dog, but I think it's not a bad idea to just touch on it. Uh, I spoke to um, Chris McDonald recently, and we spoke about it for mm-hmm. a few secs while we were talking about his new book. Um, but there was also the Gong Collection, you know, the anthology that you edited. And um, mm. and that was a great anthology, by the way. That was 2022, I think, wasn't it? But that experience yeah. must have been tough with, with uh, Red Dog. It was. It was actually, to be honest, it was a massive blow. And I was deeply, deeply depressed about it for about maybe two months mm. before I decided, all right, that's enough moping around now. I need to get back on get back on the horse but um i think unfortunately it's just um as much as i loved red dog you know and as much as it was a huge gut punch to everyone i think it's just part and parcel of being a writer on the indie scene you know if it's yeah. not some kind of controversy if there's not some kind of controversy with your publisher doing something crazy or saying something crazy <laughs> it's it, your publisher it's going out more, of business more I think. like this yeah yeah, so it is a shame. And I think I just wish people were a lot more supportive, I guess, and put their put their money where their mouths were to support the small press. Because yeah. everyone's always saying, oh, it's tragic. It no, you're right. Down, I mean, the, yeah, the amount of emails afterwards books. and stuff going around Twitter and that about how sorry we are to see it happen. Yeah, well, you know, if you don't buy the books, this is the sort of thing that does happen. Let's just say then, right, we both yeah, with yeah. everybody involved in Red Dog sean uh well and hopefully that works out yeah, yeah. but back to you and how it's worked out for you i mean that brings us to punk noir 
um, which tell us about that anyway, because this is obviously a project that you've had running for a long time um, before you published the novels. Mm, well, Punk Noir was originally started by the writer Paul, Paul Brazil, and uh, he started it originally. Uh, he's quite uh, big on the indie press. And then he started it originally, I think, maybe 10 years ago. And it was going for a very long time. And then maybe three years ago, he contacted me and he said, Steve, do you want to be the head editor of Funk Nog? No, I'm giving it up. And I said, uh, well, I don't want it to close down. Mm. And I was a bit worried about being an editor. But I said, all right, I'll take it over. And then I asked one of my one of my good friends, uh, B.F. Jones, Barbara Jones, she's another indie crime right. writer, uh, to, to come on board as well. And then since then, we've had a, a whole bunch of other writers come on as feature editors, and it's grown. And then, of course, a lot of my time is dedicated to my career, which is mm-hmm. teaching and then my own writing. But I love editing, and I want to give back to the community. So when Red Dog, collapsed um i thought well what the hell am i going to do no one wants to because it costs a lot of money to put books out basically yeah no absolutely and free books as well you know it's a big ask for you know books that have already been out for two or three years Mm. so a writer friend of mine um who's been a massive supporter since the beginning he said look steve i've got the the knowledge and the know-how and everything else to help you take punk nod to the next level you know and then uh, we had a long long meeting about it we talked about it i think we talked about it for about a month and right. then we decided to finally go go through with it so um it's uh, i don't have any computer knowledge at all i'm completely computer illiterate so as you can tell from the new the new advertising, the new front covers, the formatting, it all looks absolutely, <laughs> it all looks absolutely amazing. And it, it's been done by other people that, uh, you know. I'm glad you said that. I thought for one horrible minute you were going to say it all looks awful because I did it myself. Well, it all looks amazing because, um, you know, I was blown away by how, how amazing it all looks, even no, down does. to the formatting. It, it looks great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it does. So, um, yeah, and then there's a, there's a couple more, there's a couple of poets I want to publish and there's a couple of indie writers I would absolutely love to work with. So, right. um, and then hopefully we're going to open up submissions sometime. And then, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to put my money where my mouth is when it comes to publishing, you know, the books that I feel have genuine voices that need to be heard and, you know, uh, real I works think- of art. Yeah, we desperately need people publishing these kind of indie works that just don't interest the big publishers. We've really got to make sure that this market is taken care of. There's a lot of good writers out there who need to, you know, be able to get that voice to the public. Talking specifically about your books then. So on the 12th of December, as I said, you're going to be publishing The Dead, The Dying and The Gone, which is this trilogy of books. Well, tell us a little bit about the trilogy then. Sorry, I should say republishing the trilogy of books. Um, So let's Tell us a little bit about these books. Well, the books are an interconnected crime trilogy set from 1920s London to 1960s Hawaii. And um, they're they're all connected via characters, basically, that appear. So the main character 
in uh, the main character in the first book is actually a side character in the second book right and then the main character in the second book is a bit part player in the third book who's also a bit part player in the the second book so it's these three interconnected lives basically and uh, each story deals with uh, each story deals with a different aspect of uh, perhaps trauma or or something like that the first the first in the trilogy is Say Goodbye When I'm Gone, which is set in Hawaii. And it's really a love story for a father to his daughter. Uh, the second is uh, set in the 40s, and it's based on actual, a true a true mystery, which is um, Gene Spangler, the yeah, right. Hollywood starlet that disappeared. I've written a semi-fictionalized crime noir love story. And then the third is uh, set in 1920s London and 1940s Boston. And that's probably my most personal personal of the trilogy because I wrote for the first time about uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. That was very therapeutic to write about. And, you know, I'm really proud of that one, even though it's probably the least popular, I think, of the trilogy. It's mm-hmm. the one. It's the one I'm most proud of probably um so and the the actual response to it has been really great considering the way that it's written mm. um it's written you know from the perspective of uh, someone with obsessive compulsive disorder so um it could be quite a jarring read for some people um but no, no, you know, i mean it's like anything it's else you you want to understand people. You want to understand new places, and and that that's exciting. When you haven't been somewhere, it's great when somebody can give you a picture of of what a place feels like. But it's also about people mm-hmm. as well. I don't have OCD, mm. but I'm curious about people, and it's it's good to know. You you you, mm. you know people can laugh at these things sometimes, or just refuse to understand it. When you're confronted by a character who's got a condition, it makes you think about it. Mm. And that's mm. where you develop the empathy. So obviously you developed enough of an interest here for people to be empathetic towards a character. Yes, yes. So that's what I hope so. Like uh, as well with uh, the final book, I'll pray when I'm dying is um, it's written from the perspective of kind of a despicable, horrible, horrible person. Mm. But that's, that was my aim because I, I kind of, you, there's so many of these noir books that kind of the lovable rogue, I kind yeah. of hate those. The lovable rogue, the witty detective, and, and that kind of crap. I really hate that. I'd rather read about someone that's more more human, more more relatable. And not not relatable, but uh, someone that's imperfect. Uh, a fallen angel rather than, you know, Yeah, you know, I get what you're saying. Whatever. What you have mm. to do then is you just have to make us real you know, we have, so you have to make it real. You have to make us feel that his actions mm-hmm. are consistent with his character. And you're right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of setting up a rogue, but then actually making him a cuddly teddy bear by the time you've finished, which is that's mm-hmm. not real people. So mm-hmm. is the real history. I mean, I, I tell you what, there were, I picked out always the dead. Mm. And that was, that was the one I was thinking of particularly. And I just was rereading that before we were doing this interview, of course. And um, it's set in L.A., so it's a classic noir territory. And mm. I'm just wondering what there is for you in that, that sort of the real history 
which obviously fascinates you. And that real, you couldn't put a more noir place on the map. So I think, what was it about that that sort of attracted you? Well, the thing was, with the Gene Spangler case, I was mm. obsessed with it for about 20 years. I think I first right, read about right. it when I was, I first read about it when I was about 18. And I was obsessed with it. And I, you know, I researched it so heavily. Uh, you know, that aspect of Los Angeles, the 1940s Los Angeles, the underbelly, the CD underbelly of Los Angeles. So I was reading so much and I was completely captivated by this case. And I was waiting and waiting for someone to write this idea that I had of, you know, a, a World War II veteran uh, searching for her. Mm. Uh, but he's also suffering from tuberculosis uh, at the same time. And um, no one wrote it. So I thought, right, I'm just going to write it myself. So, But as I was uh, writing, I was still heavily researching that that period of time in Los Angeles and that case. Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to dig into that a little bit more, but I think um, maybe we should start by talking about Scott Kelly. Um, you mentioned that he's got tuberculosis, so he's in the sanatorium. That's not all his problems, let's say. This guy um, mm. comes back from the war, traumatized, PTSD, um, to the point where he's not actually sure whether he's living in the now world or in a past world. You know, you, people get traumatized by their memories. I felt that the mm. way he wrote it, what was actually happening here was this guy was so stuck inside what was going on in his head that he wasn't sure whether he was here or there, in a sense. Mm -hmm. that makes sense? Yes, yes. I, w I wanted to really show the aspect of uh, post-traumatic stress, especially mm. by war veterans, who, who can see something or experience something, and they can be... For example, mowing the lawn or eating dinner, and boom, they're they're back. They're back at that time. And I don't think he would mind me saying, but uh, my father was uh, in the armed forces. He saw he saw his best friend. Uh, they were on patrol. His best friend. Well, I don't think he'll mind me talking about this. But um, his best friend was ex blown up by a, an IED, and um, he had post-traumatic stress uh, while I was growing up for a huge amount of time about that. And he was the one that talked to me so much about it. Like, you know, he would be mowing the lawn and something would happen or there would be some kind of small sound or something and it would trigger something yeah, right. and he would be reliving, reliving the moment. And I guess because that was my father that talked to me about that, it really stuck with me, you know, and then even, even today, you know, he kind of still suffers with it. And he's kind of he's kind of a man's man, old school to the max. So he would never get therapy. But it, it's mm. um it's something that I wanted to put into the novel to show that kind of again, it's similar to OCD, isn't it? It's uh people who are tormented by these sicknesses and they're stuck in cycles due mm. to these these sicknesses. You know, it's very similar to uh, OCD when someone says, you know, oh, I have OCD because, you know, I check, 
I check my front door twice when I right, leave. Yeah, but yeah. they don't realize OCD is extremely disruptive to people who have it. You know, you can spend you can spend three hours readjusting something in your home. You know, it's you know three hours with rearranging things to a certain degree in your home, right. and then you think I've lost three hours now. You know, and you're stuck. You're completely. Some people can't understand it. You know what on earth, but that's why you know i don't talk about my myself too personally but you know it can be those kind of sicknesses can be hugely disruptive to daily living to daily life yeah. and that's what that's what i wanted to put into all of my novels that kind of these kind of uh, cycles these cycles of pain that we put ourselves through that we can't quite control and we're we're controlled by our compulsions is what i really wanted to do Mm. yeah no i think that makes a lot of sense and you're right there's a very big difference between somebody like me deciding i'm not sure whether i lock the door so i go back and double check and and the kind mm -hmm. of thing that you're talking about which as you said disrupts your life um mm -hmm. we're thinking on those terms i mean he's come back from okinawa that's the main experience that and and what you said mm -hmm. about his mates and that you know that that trauma that he's left with and of course when he comes back to america tell us a little bit about what he does then and how his life goes from there well, he comes back and uh, he comes back to the States. He's still dealing with the, the post-traumatic stress of Okinawa, where it was Okinawa, I think even today, is the bloodiest battle in the history of the earth. It was a lot of the fighting was hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was extremely, extremely brutal fighting up close. Um, I don't think, uh, I'm sure if, if you look it up, if you Google it, you know, it's absolute horrific you know i uh i go to i spend a lot of time in okinawa and you would never know if you went there because it's paradise you would never realize right, right. the soil has got you know it's drenched in blood but it's absolutely paradise when you go there it's the most beautiful place right. in the world and um anyway when he goes back to he goes back to america and he's kind of traumatized deeply by the things that he's done and the things that he's seen as a lot of gis were and um, he falls into a life of crime kind of very easily by he borrows money from the loan shark. Mm. And uh, the loan shark uh, has increased the VIG, the daily amount, uh, the, the weekly amount he has to pay interest. And basically he attacks the loan shark. He gets offered work instead of being punished by... Uh, the mobster, the real life mobster that was connected to the loan shark, all mm -hmm. of the characters based on real people. And uh, again, I wanted to show that kind of easy slide into crime, you know, because right. I think it does happen. It can happen quite easily. You know, no one sets out to be a criminal, but uh, it can happen very gradually or very quickly. And before you know it, you mm. are on, you know, on the dark side of the law um and then things progress and then because he's in these cycles of trauma he's you know making things worse for himself um he increases his trauma by a hit that he's involved in uh while he's working for bugsy siegel or benjamin siegel and um that increases his trauma then he he meets gene spangler this um femme fatale and they're She's both a starlet on the rise isn't she yes She's looking, yes She's looking for also, it. yeah go on she's 
she's a beautiful starlet, uh, bit part player in the movies, and uh, she's a bit of a playgirl. And um, her relationship with Scott Kelly is a very poisonous one. Um, but uh, he develops tuberculosis. He goes to the sanitarium, and then he reads in the newspaper that she's gone missing. So he runs away from the sanitarium to find her and mayhem ensues and mayhem ensues yes it does it's really interesting because what we've got here is i mean you pointed out about what detectives can be like what what proto detectives as well you know in in noir novels but we now have a guy who's suffering from tuberculosis he's actually getting closer and closer to being helped with his condition but of course as soon as he finds out about gene he leaves the sanatorium and that's the end of that but we also know now he has this PTSD and his day job has become being a hitman. So mm-hmm. he's not entirely qualified for the process of finding somebody and he can only do it the way he can do it. And that, of course, is to backtrack with Jean and the people she knows and the Hollywood people and see where it goes. And it, it, it all gets into how the relationship was sort of screwed up in the first place, doesn't it? Yeah, so there's a lot of flashbacks, actually. I think it was kind of a prototype for shadows slow dancing in a derelict rooms right where it's um again that kind of toxic you know can't live with or without you kind of situation um and often i feel you know damaged people find other damaged people and then damage each other right which is kind of what i wanted to express with that novel as well while also telling you know an interesting or an exciting or thrilling you know, crime drama. It is is a thrilling crime drama. What I don't want to do is tell people too much about the story. I think all we'd say on that Mm -hmm. is that um, you took Gene Spangler's story, the real story, which is full of mystery. And there are loads of different theories and different options. And even Kirk Douglas gets pulled into it at one point, you know, and nobody knows Mm -hmm. what's happened. And you've gone with a theory. You've got your own idea. And that's what the basis of the novel is. And, you know, it's Scott's chance to kind of get into that and find out what's going on. And I suppose in a way for him, this is a moment where he's trying to think he's done all these things in his life, including the worst thing for him, maybe in a way, is messing up that relationship with Gene. And mm. so for him, it's a question at this point of redemption, atonement. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think as people, we're all looking for some kind of atonement or some kind of redemption. And I think that's something actually that I'm deeply attracted with, with that kind of, well, I'm deeply attracted to this idea of the character who is awful, but they have some redeeming qualities that attract you towards them. And this person is seeking redemption for the things that they've done in the past. But usually when someone is so self-destructive, they'll destruct themselves They'll blow themselves up rather than actually, you know, save the day because yeah, they're just right. self-destructive. Um, I'm fascinated. I'm really fascinated by those kind kinds of people, I think. Mm. Mm. And that's why I think what we've got here is a character-driven novel, although it's got a good, solid, quick, you know, fast-paced uh, noir plot. At the essence of this is those relationships. Is the, even mm. when, when they're in the room together, but also when they're not in the room together, the kind of relationship that goes on still within each other, you know, within per people about those people mm. they have relationships with what they've lost, what they've gained, you know, where they're going, all those sorts of things are going on. 
Um, and uh, so I suppose in a way that's, it's kind of muscular, but at the time it's very sensitive writing too. Yeah, I think I was kind of inspired by, I guess, Raymond Carver and Ernest mm. Hemingway that way is, or even Charles Bukowski. They're all very masculine writers, but they're all very much emotionally intelligent. Mm. And I think, I think there's no better way to be really, really to be, uh, to be a man, but also to be a, emotionally intelligent at the same time, I think is a, a good way to go through life. I feel, um, have some awareness. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like uh, on a personal level, but also on on a creative level, I think that's something that I strive towards is, um, or not really strive towards, but I want to show, I want to show people maybe as they are. And I feel like mm. most of the people I know, you know, are very masculine. They're complex and messy also- and, and capable of being angry and loud and at the same time, in the right moment, sensitive and totally different. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by, again, fascinated by this idea of the person who has done awful things, but they're also a nice guy at the same time, even mm-hmm. though, uh, I don't know, the grayness of people is I'm fascinated with the gray area. You know, yeah. I, I want people to read my characters and be disgusted, but also be rooting for them at the same time. Mm. You know, because I feel as human beings, we're all in the grey, really, aren't we? We've all done bad things and we've all done good things. Yeah. You know what I think it makes me think of, in a sense, right? We do things and we have to forgive ourselves. If you want to go on living, you have to forgive yourself for things you do. Mm -hmm. But we're just less ready to forgive other people for the things they do when they transgress the same way we do. We're just that little bit sharper. Mm -hmm. In a novel, you can you can empathize more with those points in a person, you know, in a sense and get a sense of them and think, yeah, okay. You know, I could, that could be me, I suppose is what I'm trying to say, you know, because Mm -hmm. I'm a real character. I'm not some hero. I'm not some, I'm not a villain either. You know, I'm just a person. Let's talk about Mm -hmm. the Japanese novel then, because you mentioned a bit earlier that you're working on this Japanese book. Um, And one of the things that struck me about that is you have to know a place incredibly well before you can write about it. If it's going to have an authentic landscape, and I don't just mean the look of the landscape, I mean the feel of the culture and the society and everything. So, I mean, in a sense, was that why it took you this time to come around to the idea of writing a Japanese novel? Yes, definitely. It's de- that's definitely that's definitely it. You know, it's 17 years now I've lived here, and, you know, it's weird I've written about so many different places just by heavily researching and researching and researching, even researching the weather on a certain day on that right. year, you know, researching weather records and whatnot. But it took me a long time to think, you know, can I write about Japan? Am I allowed to write about Japan? But, you know, my wife said to me, you've been here for 17 years. If you can't write about it now, when can you write yeah. about yeah. it? It's a good point. You know, so, but in a way it's been, I think I'm, I think it's honestly one of the best things I've written. So I'm about 60,000 words into it now. It may be the best thing I've written. And it's also been the easiest thing I've written where, you know, I don't really have to do any research. Like today I was, I had to do uh, some laundry. So I went, uh, it's too cold to dry the clothes. So I took it over to the the coin laundry, the laundromat, and I was doing my writing while I waited for my clothes to dry. You know, and I thought, well, I can put this in the novel now or I can, you know, it's my daily life. 
the food, I'm eating the food, I'm going to the sober bars, the sober restaurants, and I'm living it as I'm writing it. So I haven't really had to do uh, too much research. The crime aspect is I've been researching. Yeah. But uh, it's been a it's been a joy actually to write write about it, and I'm kind of loving introducing people to the things, the small aspects that uh, I love about living in Japan. Mm. Um, the small things that you wouldn't notice as a tourist. Yeah, but uh, you know, I want to get away from all of the oh japan is quirky japan is oh they've got robots and anime and stuff like that i wanted to write this novel will be about your typical uh typical japanese city with typical japanese people with typical daily life aspects but within a crime novel so um i'm not sure if that's going to be a seller whether you know the publisher will want that non-quirky side but i'm kind of myself personally after living here for 17 years i'm so tired of what, seeing a documentary on the television about quirky japan and yeah right neon japan when you know it's not it's not all like that you no, know of it's, it's not no. so i i really wanted to show the daily life aspect of of the the normal salary man the normal guy going to work yeah, the mm. kind of people you write about in your novels in America or wherever you want to write about in Japan. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. No, that's lovely. Yes, yes, yes. I look forward to that. Anyway, I hope that, um, well, we'll see where that goes, but I look forward to that. Um, one last thing then. Thank Steve. you. Thank you. How about a recommendation? Something you've read or seen recently that, that uh, you think you'd bring to listeners' attention? Uh, I, there's uh, quite a few, actually. Um a few of you've had on your show. So uh, Vern Smith, Vern Smith is a, a great, novel, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also Matt Phillips, who you recently had on, but recently I finished reading Trevor Woods. You can run. That was really good. The way that he's written that. So he's written it in a really fast pace. You know, you can, you know, I knew it was a thriller just by reading the first few pages. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then as well, I read that. I read uh, Trevor Wood's book, You Can Run, and then I was like, okay, I need to go back to the beginning and write a prologue because my novel started a little bit too daily life. Right. And his his novel is fast-paced from the beginning to the end. So I was like, okay, I need to up the pace. So it, it really kind of helped me to look at my own work and think, okay, I need to go back and do some redrafting. Um, other writers that I love off the top of my head – um anthony anthony neil smith is uh one of my favorite writers on the indie scene uh, he writes really great dark dark noir um there's so many great writers at the moment uh sarah moorhead is great dom nolan um yes dom right. nolan i don't know if you've had him on the podcast but he's he's yeah um, um vine street he's, yeah yes vine street completely blew me away when when i read it it was uh a great English, a real English crime story. I, I, I feel. Um, yeah. To be honest, I don't read. I don't actually read a lot of English crime, straightforward crime fiction. Yeah. I don't know. I just love an underdog story. Um, yeah. People 
who come up on the indie scene, they've come up on the indie scene by submitting to crime magazines. They've honed their craft by writing yeah. short stories and then they're jumping onto novels. Mm. And there's a lot of extremely highly skilled writers out there on the indie scene. So I feel maybe there's going to be a, a renaissance somewhat of uh, more of these guys coming through. In I the hope future. so. Look, I said it before and I, I, I believe this entirely. I just think it's a question of putting the books in front of people. If they were on those central shelves in Waterstones, more people would buy them. If they were in the mm-hmm. bookshop displays in the windows, you know, if they were in the adverts on the tube, they'd get profiled the same way as a lot of writers do now. But it's just not, it's, it's work. It's more hard work for the people who actually sell the books. You know, indie publishers and, and indie, sorry, indie um, bookshops do a lot of work on it. There is 100% a market for it, but it's just perhaps more of a risk for for agents and for publishers to take a chance on it Mm. when you said that one thing that struck me recently is um jordan harper everybody knows yeah yeah you know Mm. that's an indie novel but all of a Mm. sudden you know it's getting some attention and now people are realizing just how good the writing is just how interesting a novel that is so on a more positive note you know we just need more crossovers like that yeah it's been brilliant thank you very much Stephen. oh thank you thank you thank you so much Well, thank you to Chris Frost, Robert Rutherford, and Stephen J. Gold for some fascinating insights into their novels there. If you click the link on the program notes, it'll take you to where you can buy the books. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favourite podcast provider. As ever, I'll be back very shortly. And another Christmas show will follow this one very quickly. Whatever you do, please enjoy your Christmas break. And thank you very much for listening. Bye for now.